Welcome to Season 3 of American Political History, Conformity, War, and Liberty, The Fraying of Conscience. Rhode Island was nothing more than a sprinkling of towns, maybe a dozen people in each, without proper title, but owing their permanent settlement rights to Roger Williams' territorial claims of purchasing the land from the Narragansett. And even though Rhode Island had become an area for both those troubled by conscience and for those that sought greater freedom than they could find in other colonies, there was little social cohesion tying them together. William Harris had had many arguments with Roger Williams over land rights. Harris and some others simply wanted to obtain larger shares of land to cultivate. These issues had been taken to an arbitration and it was decided that there would be five magistrates elected by the free men of Providence to handle land claims and disputes. One dissenter in particular would test Williams's cause of protection of consciences. But in that test, it would galvanize Rhode Island legally, and as a collective political body that would protect their liberty of conscience even under the pressure and enticement of the Bay. We start this story with Samuel Gorton's arrival in Boston in 1637, in the middle of the Hutchinson trials. Gordon brought to New England his own personal theology of an inner light of God, and he himself had a sort of proto-Quaker theology. It was quickly clear that he would be unable to stay in the bay. Gordon then went to Plymouth for a hopefully warmer welcome. He was at first accepted until authorities got into his dispute with his wife's servant, Gorton stood up for the servant's testimony, publicly arguing with Plymouth magistrates about this issue. So they charged him with stirring up mutiny in the face of the court, and he was banished from Plymouth. Next, he went to Newport, Rhode Island. But he had had issues with the magistrates there. Gorton refused to recognize their magisterial authority, since the colony lacked a charter from England anyways. The court ordered Gorton to be publicly whipped. Gorton endured this punishment and still refused to submit to Newport's authority. After some public shouting about the court's illegitimacy, Gorton was whipped again and banished from Newport. After four years of living in the New World, Gorton had tried almost every community, so he was only left with Providence. Providence was much smaller than the other communities, only perhaps maybe 200 people total, and all it had was a government of five land arbiters. Williams was hesitant to welcome Gordon, but he said he would give him shelter for the time so he could get back on his feet and move on. But Gordon was a charismatic charmer and started to draw a following to his preachings in Providence. Williams would write to Winthrop about how to handle this issue. That Master Gordon had abused high and low at Aquidneck Island, and is now bewitching, bemaddening poor Providence, almost all sucking his poison, as first they did at Aquidneck. Some few and myself withstand his inhibition. Yet the tide is too strong against us, I fear. Gorton pushed on being elected a vested freeman of Providence, and this would start to fracture the community. Gorton would argue that the only objection to his admittance as a freeman was his religious doctrine, and according to Providence's own compact, he could not be excluded without violating Providence's freedom of conscience. Harris, who had been turned down by Williams about increasing his land claims, saw Gorton as fresh blood that could favor further doling out of lands. Harris would argue that 
He who say it is my conscience ought not yield subjugation to any human order or law among men. Williams believed no such thing. Williams was not an anarchist and had not founded Providence to be an anarchist state. Providence was founded for freedom of conscience and protection of public speech. It was not founded to create a legal system of relativism of one's particular conscience. Providence needed basic laws and public decorum like everywhere else. Benedict Arnold would come to William's aid. Arnold was an unlikely ally. He too had been banished from the Bay, but Arnold had come to Providence for cheap land and cared little about William's freedom of religion ideas. Side note, this Benedict Arnold is the great-great-grandfather of Benedict Arnold of Revolutionary War fame, but we'll get to him later. The Arnolds were a powerful voice in Providence. They were a clan of multiple family units with multiple voting freemen. Benedict Arnold sided with Williams to protect his own interests. He believed that Gorton was trying to get a majority of the vote so he could strip the first founders of their land rights. In 1641, Arnold gave a written brief to the town that rebutted Gorton's claim that he was being rejected for religious views. Arnold argued that his rejection was for entirely civil and political views. Gorton has used vilifying and appropriate terms for those trying to exercise the state's authority, and he had demonstrated a despising and scornful view of our civil state. Gordon had been a notoriously evil trouble of civic states wherever he hath lived, and they were all a far greater force than we are in Providence. What may we expect if he could get himself in here? Surely first a breach of our civil peace, and next a ruin of all such as are not on his side, as their daily practice doth declare. Ergo, they are not fit to be received into this town. Both Arnold and Williams feared only a minority of the freemen shared their views, but their arguments had their effect. For now, the Gortoness were not admitted into the town fellowship. Still, Gordon remained in the town. He continued preaching the inner light. He continued preaching against magistrates, against power, and of the exercise of any authority by government. Gordon pressure began to break down the regular order of providence. When the town's arbitrators, Arnold was one of those arbitrators, ruled against a follower of Gorton on the repayment of his debts, a group of Gorton followers physically blocked the collection agents with the force of their fists. On the next attempt, both sides came armed, only ending in a stare-down because Williams rushed to intervene in the situation. Benedict Arnold had himself been banished from the bay, but his family had not. They petitioned the bay for help collecting the debts from that Gorton follower, accusing them of licentious lust like savage brutes and beasts who have no respect for property, houses, good land, wives, livestock, blood, or anything. The Arnolds asked for armed intervention from the bay. The Bay Magistrates saw this as an opportunity to end the irritant of Rhode Island by solidifying the Bay's authority of law over that region. The Bay had no legal jurisdiction by its charter in Rhode Island, but if an honorable English family had requested the Bay's aid, then any proper English court and settlement worth its name would come to intervene in favor of English gentlemen. In the meantime, Gorton 
Fearing another armed standoff, left Providence. He settled in Shumuk, present-day Warwick. There, Gorton would establish his own authority-less society. Once Gorton was living separately, he and Williams would actually have a decent relationship and get along. But Arnold was not happy about him being anywhere nearby. Arnold purchased major parts of land near Providence, where others had unofficially settled for years. Arnold's purchase was from minor sachems of the Narragansett. This sale claim was very weak, because William had been gifted all of the lands in the region by the chief sachem himself of the Narragansett, Canonicus, and English courts had always recognized native rank superiority in land disputes. So Williams had by far the best land claim for the entire region. So Arnold got copies of William's deed and cut portions pertaining to Patuxet and most of the areas that he purchased out of that document. When proof arose of these alterations, he claimed his wife did it accidentally, that old con. In 1642, Arnold submitted his justification for ownership of these lands to the Bay's court. Arnold had already received assurance from the magistrates of the Bay that his claims would be looked upon favorably. The Bay was using these petitions he was making to expand even more their reach and legitimacy as the judicial authorities of Rhode Island. Seeing this weakness in Rhode Island, or the opportunity potentially there, both Connecticut and Plymouth started looking into their own potential claims into the Rhode Island Territory. Roger Williams and the people of Rhode Island had strong land claims to the region, but Rhode Island as a concept was no official English colony and it had no charter. This meant that the courts that they had set up lacked any English legal legitimacy unlike the potential legitimacy of the Bay. So they chose Roger Williams to travel back to England to petition from Parliament or the King a charter for their colony. The Bay would not really allow Williams free passage through Boston. He was banished, after all. They would reply to his request by saying, if he was even to travel through the Bay, they might have to execute him. So Williams would have to travel south to New Amsterdam to get voyage back to England. Williams was famous both to natives from his work with the Narragansett and Europeans as a valued mediator. While waiting for a ship that was returning from England, Williams would help to mediate the ceasefire between the Lenape and the Dutch, helping to end the pig wars. Just another amazing side note of the life of Roger Williams. While waiting in queue for a boat... He set up a ceasefire and ended a war. Williams had to develop some sort of strategy and argument for turning a Puritan-controlled parliament in England to supporting his colony of free conscience. He would have to use his knowledge about the natives to show the hypocrisy of the Bay, and with this knowledge he could highlight the strengths of Rhode Island and show the weaknesses of the Puritans' commonwealth. For the Puritans of Parliament... The failure to advance Christianity in America was the greatest disappointment of the English colonies. Spanish and Portuguese colonies had spread Catholicism to millions by the sword. Even the French priests had started to prophetize the Mississippi Valley. But what was the result of an English Puritan colony? Nothing. They had advanced Christianity in no way with the natives of the New World, despite all of their political words to the contrary. Not Virginia, not the Bay, or Plymouth, or Connecticut, or New Haven. Yet all of these settlements had justified their colonization with the expansion of Christ's dominion. 
yet they had done nothing to promote it. And the common belief of the time was that the return of Jesus could only happen when all of the tribes of Israel had converted to Christianity. And English theologians suspected that the New World natives were a lost tribe of Israel. Therefore, for Jesus to return, it required the conversions of the natives. The Bay had argued that the natives were so savage, they first had to be tamed before they could truly be converted. But Williams could directly undermine this line of thinking. Williams had taken the time to learn to speak Algonquian, and he had taken the time to make relations with the Narragansett, and he had taken the time to learn what he could of their culture and history. He poured all of this knowledge into a book that would be published when he got to England. The book was A Key into the Language of America. This was not the first book about the natives of the New World and their languages, but it was the best by far published in English. This book broke down stereotypes and focused on the commonalities of native and European cultures. It humanized the natives of America. And in this book, he leveled a direct criticism at the New England Puritans. That with simply a little effort, conversion should not be that hard. That when you explain the English were just like the natives before Christ came to them, and gave them their blessings of cloth, goods, and technology, which was endowed to the Englishmen by their service to God. Then the natives asked to become Christian and join in Christ's blessing. And Williams provocatively attacked the idea of the uniqueness of the native savagery, comparing English violence against the Irish as just as barbaric and savage as anything found in the New World. Williams crushed the Puritans' excuse that the natives needed taming. And then he attacked the sword, for the Spanish have used the sword like the Puritans in New England said they needed to do, to force thousands into practices of Christianity, even getting them to observe the Sabbath day, praying to God, outwardly forced to appear Christian. But as any true theologian knows, no soul has ever been saved unless it willingly submits to God. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.